0: So appreciate Michael bringing up uh, Israel a moment ago, and uh, you know it is what's heavy on my heart today, and uh, I was having a little trouble sleeping last night thinking about a lot of different things there, kind of related to that, and you know I have I have a key here, uh, you know for my the truck that I drive it's a suburban, but you know it's such a small thing it really is, and uh, this key you know, is the only thing that gets that big piece of metal moving and, you know, it weighs over 2,000 pounds, but this tiny little key is the key to that truck. And Israel is such a small place and the world doesn't seem to understand, much of so the world doesn't understand that in God's sovereign plan, that that little piece of real estate about as big as New Jersey, it's the key to world events. It's the key to the future of the planet that we live on. So yeah, we do want to be in prayer. For uh, the people of Israel, but also that God would use this as a catalyst for our own nation to kind of bring a sense of unity that we need so badly to our nation as well, uh, because it really is a, it really is a battle against evil and darkness. So we're going to go to the uh, Book of Romans. So if you would turn to Romans chapter eight, and uh, good news, uh, good news or bad news, we're about halfway through the Book of Romans. All right, and uh, it's been it's been so so good, and I've enjoyed it so much, and we're we're getting to a place now that is just so rich. And this passage that we're gonna look at today is just enormously rich. It's so, so good. And so you're gonna walk out of here very encouraged today. You're gonna to walk out of here strengthened. If you don't know Christ as your savior, you're gonna walk out of here very, very challenged today. The question gets asked a lot when we are younger, we were kids, you know, what do you wanna be when you grow up? And you think about it, you notice with young children, The answer to that question is almost always fired by imagination and and faith and hope and desire. You know, like, I want to be an astronaut, or I want to be a dancer. I want to be an NFL quarterback, you know? I want to be a singer. Uh, My great ambition when I was young is I wanted to work in research and and development at Nabisco in the Oreo division. You know, that's what I really wanted more than anything. But as we get older, we start thinking about real-life challenges that question starts to create stress. You know, when you're seven, eight, or nine years old, you know, that's a fun question. When you're 17 and 18 years old, that's a tough question. It really is. What do you want to be when you grow up? And here's what, you know, kind of starts to hit you in the face. Did you know you're going to spend about 100,000 hours of your lifetime at work? And then you start thinking when you're 17 or 18, man, what if I get it wrong? What if I go out to be a You know, what if I go and I want to be a singer, I want to be a dancer, I want to be an astronaut, I want to be a quarterback. What if I don't make it? What if I get it wrong? And so we stop thinking in terms of being something and we start thinking in terms of doing something. And at some point we become more concerned about doing than being, more concerned about activity than identity. And here's the thing I want us to understand today. It's going to be so important. It's so important to our lives mentally, emotionally, in every way. Nothing has a greater impact on your life and mine than our sense of identity. Our sense of identity being who we believe we are, who we believe that we will be one day. Now, when most of us think about our identity, we think about our job, we think about our family, we think about our last name, but God's word tells you and me that there's so much more to our identity than we can comprehend. And if you know Christ as your savior, What you will be and what you are is so much more than you can imagine. First John chapter three, John said it this way. Now we are children of God and we have not yet been shown what we will be in the future, but but we know that when Christ comes again, we will be like him because we will see him as he really is, all right? That's a remarkable passage of scripture. Our title today is Embraced. It's coming from Galatians chapter three, verse 26, where the apostle Paul said this, you are all sons and daughters of God. I want to say that one more time. You are sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. When I put my faith in Christ, I say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have been a rebel. I have messed my life up. Would you please forgive me of my sins? Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. I believe you died for my sins. Would you be my savior? Would you be the Lord of my life? When that happens, the Bible says something remarkable takes place. Become a child of God, a son or a daughter of God. Romans chapter 8, Paul's been helping us understand step by step this idea of our identity in and through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Most of us, we get our identity in and through our family of origin. That's where our identity comes from. And what Paul is trying to tell us here is that, no, now you need to get your sense of identity from that other family that you're a part of, your eternal family, not just your earthly family. Because when we do this, we ask Jesus to be our savior. Three things happen to you and me simultaneously. Number one, it's this thing called justification, which we talked about a few weeks ago. That's where you're declared not guilty. Uh, The charges are dropped. You're innocent of all wrongdoing. In the eyes of God, as remarkable as that is, it takes great faith to believe that. Let's be honest. I mean, to say, hey man, all the the charges against me, past, present, and future, man, they are dropped. And when God looks at me, he doesn't see my guilt. He sees my innocence. It takes a lot of faith to believe that. The other thing is regeneration. The Bible tells us that God awakens the soul, the spirit within us. It's dead, uh, the Bible says. It's like stone. It's as hard as stone, the soul or your very heart. And yet somehow God is able to take that heart of stone and and soften it and awaken it. And it becomes a heart of flesh and and you're alive to God. You're awake to God. It's like you, you come out of your spiritual coma and all of a sudden you understand what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ, the son of God. And it's a wonderful, wonderful place. It's called regeneration. But here's where we're going to focus today. Is the whole idea of adoption. Adoption. God makes a legal declaration that you are going to be his child. He changes your identity so that you are now one of his very children, his very own of his very own. (laughs) Just as much as Jesus is the son of God, you become the son or the daughter of God in Jesus when you ask him to be your Savior. You see, justification is a matter of guilt and innocence. Regeneration, it's a matter of life and death. But adoption is a matter of near and far. Adoption says that God has pulled you near to Him, and He holds you close to Him, and you become a part of His eternal family. John chapter 1, verse 12, he says, He gave the right and the power to become children of God to those who received Him. He gave this to those who put their trust in his name. Not because of some great thing that you did, some great sacrifice that you made. No, when you trust Jesus, you trust his name, you trust Jesus as your savior, you are adopted into his family. Yeah, you know, up to now, nowhere in the book of Romans have we been called the children of God. But what you're gonna see now is that there's a change that takes place in the way Paul is writing. Up to this point, He's kind of been talking, you know, chapters one through seven about kind of our legal standing, you know, in in, in terms of when we ask Christ to be our savior, you know, the, the innocence that's given to us, the forgiveness that's given to us. But now he's going to kind of shift gears a little bit. And he's going to start talking to us about the emotional connection, the affection that God has for us. It's more familial than it is legal. And it's just an incredible place to be here in the book of Romans. We are not simply pardoned of our sins anymore, but we are parented by God. We are embraced by our Heavenly Father. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 14. He says, 8, 14. Yeah, here we go, right here. Okay, yeah. All right, verse 14. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory adopted by God, and Paul is writing to the residents of Rome, so he's using this whole idea of the Roman legal adoption system as a teaching tool to help us understand our identity in Christ. I'll put up a slide for you really quick. These four Roman emperors, you have Augustus Caesar, the emperor Trajan, uh, Hadrian, and Marcus Aurelius. What do they all have in common? Well, first of all, they were all highly successful by Roman standards. You know, we have the month of August. We still remember Augustus Caesar. Marcus Aurelius was a great philosopher. And we still have people who read his philosophy still today. Uh, Hadrian, Hadrian's Wall in Great Britain. You know, we still talk about that. And so their reigns marked the high point of Roman power and prosperity. And due to their success, they're the most well-known of all the Roman emperors, except for Julius Caesar. But you know the other thing they have in common? They were all adopted. Every one of them were adopted. But as a great Bible scholar, F.F. Bruce, he said this, In the Roman world of the first century, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father, and he was in no way inferior in status to a son born into the family in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy his father's affection more fully than the biological son would. And look at this word adoption that Paul uses here. It's a compound word. It means a son being placed. In other words, to give the place of a son to someone to whom it does not belong. Isn't that powerful when you see that? To give the place of a son and heir to someone who doesn't belong there. And that's the spirit of adoption. Paul is talking about here. And in ancient Rome, adoption had a powerful meaning. Did you know that when a child was born biologically, the parents actually had the option of disowning a child for any reason? And the biological family relationship wasn't permanent. A child could be removed from the family. But if the child was legally adopted, adopting the child meant that that child was a permanent part of the family The adoption was irrevocable. Once it was legally done, it could not be undone for any reason. So the the biological birth could be undone, but the legal birth could not. Isn't that so powerful when you think about our relationship with the Lord? And by the way, an adopted child received a new identity. Number one is this, all your prior crimes, your debts, uh, uh, your uh, responsibilities, those things were all erased. And then you would receive a new name. And it was like you had to leave your old family. This is very powerful, by the way. You, as an adopted son or daughter, you had to leave the old family and forsake all of that and then be adopted into a new family because all of those rights, all of those responsibilities, everything from your old family was legally erased. And you would be the legal son of your adopted father. You had all the rights and benefits of a son. And you would become an heir to the Father and you would share all of his possessions. One of my favorite, people ask me, what's your favorite movie? My favorite movie of all time has been her. When I was a kid, we would watch it every Easter at my grandparents' house. I love that movie. But there's a powerful depiction of Roman adoption in that movie. Uh, Stream it sometime and rent it. It is a great, great movie, okay? Uh, That movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe, kind of loosely based on Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur is so much better, okay? It really is. But this young man named Judah, Judah Ben-Hur, he's a Jewish Jewish noble. He gets kind of tricked into becoming a slave on a Roman galley, and he's a rower. And his ship sinks in battle. And he saves the life of a wealthy Roman general named Arius. And Arius, his only son, has been killed. And so he just thinks Judah Ben-Hur is this amazing young man. And so he adopts Judah Ben-Hur. And so he's no longer a slave, but a son of a wealthy Roman general. And he was given a new name. He was no longer Ben-Hur. Now his name is young Arius. And he has all the rights to the general's wealth. And the general is extremely wealthy, extremely well-connected. And there's a ceremony they have where he declares him his adopted son. And he takes off his signet ring and he gives this ring to this young man who had been a slave. He said, you were a slave. Now you're my son and you receive a new life, a new home, and a new father. It's a really powerful scene in the movie. It's amazing. Look at this Galatians chapter four. When the right time came, God sent his son so that he could adopt us as his very children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. When Paul introduces this concept of adoption, Just like Roman adoption, there are privileges. There are five privileges of being adopted by God that Paul tells us in this short two or three verses. We're going to look at three today and two next week. Number one, adoption grants you and me access to authentic spirituality. What does it mean to be spiritual? You know, you think about today, people, if you say, what does it mean to be spiritual? They'll talk about things like meditation and lotus position and sweat lodges, you know, yoga. You know, we identify that with being spiritual. It's really sad. In the eyes of contemporary Americans, to be anything but Christian is to be spiritual. It's so misguided. You know, every family has a defining physical trait. You know, it might be your nose. It might be your hair color. It might be your size. You know, your eye color people who see you, they know your identity. In my family, uh, one of our defining trademarks is white hair. You know, uh, I almost, I had almost completely white hair by the time I was 40 years old. So did my mother and so did her dad, my grandfather. And now my oldest son, Benjamin, he's 29 years old and he's starting to get a lot of white hair mixed in over here, you know? And so I'm kind of giving him a hard time. Like, son, it's coming. Get ready. All right. It's happening. I went to uh, Melanie's 20-year class reunion. This is about 20 years ago. And uh, this one girl in her class, she had some responsibilities up on stage. And she was getting kind of snarky. And she said, I want to give out an award. And she said, I'm gonna, I want to recognize all of the older men who married younger women in the class of 1983. And uh, by the way, I graduated in 1983, just so you all know. And so did Melanie. And so he asked four men to come up front and get their reward, which was a tube of Bengay. And uh, she called my name, and I went up front, and I glared at her. Man, I did. I was so upset. And I and I, I got up closer. I said, "I graduated 1983, by the way. And actually, Melanie is six weeks younger, older than me. You know, she's a cougar. Okay, I was a tender young, <laughs> I was a tender young, naive little boy, and she just grabbed me and put her claws into me and drug me in. You know." And, and so this last week, I was not happy about it at all. And We had her 40th class reunion, and I told her, I said, honey, I want you to know that if that happens again, there will be a speech, and it will, hurt, <laughs> it will hurt some people's feelings. It really will, okay? I am not having that. But wouldn't it be helpful if God put a little mark on all of us? To show that we were his children? Like a little red cross would appear on your forehead maybe when you ask Jesus to be your savior. Like I see John be, hey, me too. Wow, that's awesome. Or a little fish, you know, symbol appear on your forehead. Or what if you had a bright glow, you know? Wouldn't that be cool? Like Moses after Mount Sinai, they be like, hey, let's take less camping. He glows in the dark. It'd be great. We don't have to have fire or anything. But outwardly, you know, there really is no distinction, but inwardly, The change could not be more profound. Now, we are supposed to see the fruit of the Spirit, the outward expression of the presence of the Spirit of God, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. supposed to see those things in our lives. But anyone who accepts Jesus as their Savior, Paul is telling you right here, you receive some of Jesus in in your very soul. All true believers, Possess the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ as a seal, as, a, as an insignia, uh, a designation as a child of God. Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 says, in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed." It's like, what is a seal? A lot of you have like little insignias on your car, you know, like a double T or a UT, sadly. All right, or you might have a BU for Baylor, very very sadly, you know, you might have something like that on your car, it's an insignia, it's a decal. That's what he's saying right here, something like that. To so be a Christian is have the spirit of God living in you, and when the spirit of God is living in you, he is not passive. He is constantly prompting us, teaching us, moving us, calming us, leading us. If we are in Christ, we are in the spirit, and we have the privilege of being led by the spirit. If we so choose Galatians five says this, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. And since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. I want you to think about that for a minute with me. All right. Um, I'm going to get us some bad luck here. Okay. But uh, open this up. Michael's going to help me out with that. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Let's assume Michael's much more godly than me. <laughs> Michael Michael is the Holy Spirit, all right? Yeah. right? You're doing a great job. Right. <laughs> all right. And so as long as I'm under this umbrella with Michael, the Holy Spirit, uh, we're good, all right? And so Michael starts walking along. What's my job as a Christian? My job is to stay with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. And as long as I'm doing that, I'm fine. But I want to go to the back of the room. And I am like, hey, I want I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to I'm gonna go this way. All right, And I get out from underneath that cover and I'm getting wet cold and miserable because of where I am. And Michael's still going. And right over there is a beautiful, beautiful young lady. I was supposed to meet her. I was supposed to know her, but instead I'm walking down here and I miss her completely because I wasn't being led by the Spirit. All right, that's, y'all might not know that's my wife over there. I know everybody knows that, okay. all right, <laughs> All right, the one that's a cougar. There's the cougar right over there. All right, so that's what it means to be led by the Spirit, okay? That's what I want you to see. And so it's really important for you and I to understand that, you know, the Apostle Paul says here that those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the children of God. They are the adopted sons and daughters of God. And so we do want to be led by the Spirit. And so there's a synchronicity that's involved in sharing an umbrella there. We can move toward the desires of our flesh. You know, someone makes me mad, I get full vent to my anger. Or, you know, I might go streaming movies that I know are wrong, that I know don't, you know, fit the purity that's befitting of a son or a daughter of God. And it might feel good at the moment, but ultimately and inevitably, it leaves us miserable like being in the rain without an umbrella. And I want to share something with you real quickly that has been so impactful in my life. Look up on the screen for a minute. These two verses of scripture and two of Paul's letters, Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3, you notice what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says, be filled by the Spirit. And he says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs, singing in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then look over Colossians chapter 3. You might Colossians and Ephesians are what you might call Sister letters. Most scholars believe they were probably written in the same setting. He probably wrote one letter, then immediately started the other one. And he says in this letter, let the word of Christ, the scriptures, dwell in you richly. And he says the same thing. Teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness, and and everything you do in word or deed, giving thanks to God. What do you see happening there? You look at these two passages, the results are the same in our lives. What's different is the thing that produces the results. In the Ephesian chapter passage, he says, be filled with the Spirit. In the Colossians passage, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What is he saying there? Being filled with the Spirit is the same thing as letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When Paul was preaching and teaching he would speak about being filled with the Spirit and being filled with the Scripture almost interchangeably. And so if you and I want to have a Spirit-filled life, we want to be led by the Spirit and look in the power of the Spirit. We don't go looking for you know, a quiver in our liver or something like that. You saturate your heart and your mind with the Word of God because that's where life is. That's where the Spirit is. So you know, Somebody once said one time, I want to hear the audible voice of God. Well, then read your Bible out loud. All right. That's what you do. All right. It is the words of God. John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus said it this way It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh doesn't give life, it is useless. It counts for nothing. The words I told you are spirit and they give life. In our ordinary, everyday lives, the children of God are constantly looking and listening. Lord Jesus. What would you have me do? What would you have me say in this situation? Lord, show me in your word what you want me to do in this situation. Lord, I seek you in your word. I want to know your will for my life. I want to walk with you. I want to stay under the umbrella. Lord. Show me how. And that is authentic spirituality, not sweat lodges and yoga pants and low dispositions and things like that. Number two. Adoption grants you and me security in our relationship to God. He says, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. You know, my oldest son is going to be here next weekend. And let's suppose I sit down with him and I say, I say, Benjamin, I've been working on my last will and testament. And I want to kind of go over this with you. You're my firstborn and this is your inheritance. But I have to tell you, there's one condition. There is something that some people do that I hate so much that if you do it, I'm going to be so angry, I'll completely disown you, but what's and I'm going to banish you from the family. I'm going to strike your name from my will, and I will deny you your inheritance. What's his next question? <laughs> what is it, Dad? I'm not going to tell you, all right? But you're going to know when you do it, all right? You're going to know. You could spend the rest of your life studying your Bible, looking for that unpardonable sin that some groups talk about so much. It's just not there. Now, there is an unpardonable state. What's the unpardonable state? The unpardonable state is living in defiance to God, in rebellion to Jesus. You know, I don't need Jesus. I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to live it my own way. That's an unpardonable state, but there's no unpardonable sin. But it is so heartbreaking how how many Christian groups and denominations will instill this kind of fear into people, and they drill it into people's minds. If you don't live to a certain standard, if you don't live up to a certain level, here's a list of things to do, things not to do, and if you don't do the list, you're going to spend eternity in hell. And it is possible to get some degree of compliance to your list of rules and regulations through fear. It does work in the short term. But God, when he was here, God in the flesh, Jesus soundly rebuked the religious leaders for instilling that kind of fear into the people. And when the spirit of God comes into your heart at salvation, fear, Paul says here, is one of the first things to go. When you think about being in the presence of God, I need to ask you this today. In the presence of God, is there confidence? Is there a sense of ease and tranquility, or is there fear and tension? uh, Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And you notice what Paul does here. He contrasts the fear of a slave with the affection of a son. The Spirit does not lead you and me to godliness by fear and worry and anxiety, the Spirit of God leads in you you and me into godliness by stirring up family affection and love and confidence and assurance. It's a vast difference between the way that slaves serve their masters and sons serve their fathers. Slaves perform duties. Children perform acts of love. Slaves will grudgingly obey. Children will gladly respond. Slaves are motivated by fear of punishment. Children are motivated by love of relationship. And slaves ask, what is required? And children ask, what do you need? So your father in heaven doesn't want you to walk in fear and tension and anxiety. His desire is that you would experience freedom and confidence in your relationship with him. And we all struggle with sin. We may be temporarily overcome, but we will never be ultimately defeated by sin. Romans 6.14 says, Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You see, grace defines your relationship with God when you have Jesus as your Savior, precisely because you are adopted. And no matter what happens, that is where we are. That is our starting place with God is grace and the security that it brings. And the last one real quickly is this, is that when we're adopted, it awakens an affection for God. Notice where he says here, he says, and by him, he means the spirit. We cry, Abba, Father. Look back at verse seven with me real quickly. If you have your Bible open, your tablet, your phone, look at verse seven. He says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. The people out there that do not have the spirit of God, they're hostile. There's a hostility. There's a hostility to the word of God. There's a hostility to the church. There's a hostility to God himself. There's a hostility to the story of the cross. You see that on TV and and online all the time. But look at verse 15 he uses the word cry. That's a word uh, you know that he was trying to describe the, the crying out of a child. And that word Abba, which means daddy in the Aramaic, the original language here. All right. So it conjures up in your mind and mine, a child crying out for their father with genuine affection, with genuine admiration and love. And from our hearts, there rises this Irrepressible cry. It's not a statement. It's a cry. It says something like, Daddy. And so Paul doesn't say that the work of the Spirit is that, you know, we're going to affirm the doctrine that God is our Father. Or we're going to reason logically that God is our Father. No, he says the work of the Spirit in your heart and mine is that we respond emotionally to God. God, you are my Father. When Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, he said, begin this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It was unlike anything anyone had ever done because up to that time, all the religious teachers and leaders, there's such great reverence for God. And absolutely, there's a place for reverence in our relationship with the Lord, but there also has to be that sense of relationship. So the spirit of God transforms the heart that is hostile to God into a heart that's full, filled to the brim with love for God. How? By revealing to you and me the deep and abiding, breathtaking affection God has for you. You cannot understand the awesome proportions of the heart of God without the Spirit of God. It just does not compute. It does not make human sense. We do not have the calculus to understand the immensity of the heart of God. And the more and more you see the affection that God has for you in the power of the Spirit through the Word of God, then the more affection you will have for Him. This is why Paul, at the end of his life, he's writing a letter to his young protege named Titus. And he said this When the kindness and affection of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not by the works that we did, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs. This is so powerful. Remind yourself of this day by day. The breathtaking reality of the affection God has for you. A Christian is a son or daughter of the living God, God Almighty, adopted into his eternal family. What does that mean? Look up on the screen. This means God saves you. God protects you. God provides for you. He plans for you. He hears you. He hurts for you when you're hurting. He claims you as his very own. He corrects you as a son or daughter that he loves. He strengthens you in your darkest day. He guides you. He teaches you. He shields you. He enjoys you. And he encourages you. All that's true because you are the blood-bought son or daughter of God Almighty. And I want you to think about it this way today. As we conclude, imagine there's a young man out there who's gotten in a lot of trouble with the law all through his teens. Shoplifting, reckless driving, assault and battery, (laughs) drunk driving, and he's done it all. He's done it all. He lives in a small town, and every time he's taken to court, it's always the same judge. Let's just say Judge Smith. Okay. This young man is so angry with this judge because this judge is fair, but he's tough. This boy is always guilty. So he's always in trouble. He's always getting fines and you know, probation and things like that. He's out one night with a bunch of his friends and he's really drunk and he drives by the judge's house and he starts cussing the judge there in the car. Man, he singles me out. He's unfair. He hates me. He has a grudge against me. And one of his friends says, if you hate him so much, quit talking about it and do something about it. He says, yeah, I think I'm going to do that. So he goes to the gas station, buys a Dr. Pepper and a glass bottle, you know, drinks the Dr. Pepper, and he goes out and he fills that Dr. Pepper bottle with gasoline, puts a little rag in the top. He goes by the judge's house. There's a light on upstairs. He's like, yeah, a judge, this will scare him good. He lights that Molotov cocktail. He throws it. It explodes. And he and his friends laugh and the tires squeal as they drive away as fast as they can. And they get more and more drunk as the night goes on. But the judge wasn't home that night. He's gone for the weekend. The light was on because their teenage son was home. The judge's son was upstairs doing homework. And when the smoke starts coming under the door, it's too late. There's no way for him to escape. He tries, but he succumbs to the smoke. And the judge's son dies in the fire. So the police go to work. They look at some security cameras in the area, in the neighborhood. And they positively identify the arsonist because they're very familiar with this kid. Because he's always in trouble. They go to his house the next morning. And he's hung over, passed out on the couch. They put him in cuffs. They take him to court. And there the young man stands. And the very judge he had tried to hurt, whose son that he had killed, that judge is staring at him so intensely. And He's standing up there above him wearing that black robe. And he knows what's coming. The death penalty. The judge hands the bailiff some papers and the bailiff comes over and he puts those papers in front on the table in front of this young man. And he says, the judge is asking you to sign these. And so this belligerent, thieving, lying, drunken, arsonist, he signs those papers. He's still defiant. And the bailiff brings the papers to the judge and the young man asks, sir, may I ask, what did I just sign? He says, you just legally changed your name to Smith. The judge stands up. He takes off his black robe. He said, I just want you to know, young man, that I'm not pressing charges today. You are innocent in the eyes of the law despite your crimes. And furthermore, I want to ask you if you'd like to join my family. I want to adopt you. I've changed your name to Smith and you will be every much every, every bit as much my son as the son that you killed last night. I'm going to give you a new start, a new name, a new family, a new identity, a whole new life. Will you join my family? The young man is overwhelmed by the mercy and the grace and the love that he's being shown. His father has been cruel, mean. His father's a scoundrel. He's never even dreamed that someone would think this way, much less act this way. He says, yes, I will. And the judge walks over to him and embraces him. Welcome to my family you might be thinking, that would never happen. No way that would ever happen. And you're right. With people, that could never happen. But that is exactly what the Word of God is telling you and me happens when we ask Jesus to be our Savior. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things possible Hmm. let's bow our heads together for just a moment if we could and with our heads bowed and our eyes closed i just want to ask you a very important question this morning have you trusted jesus as your savior have you been adopted into god's family have you said to god i i am a sinner lord forgive me i know it was my sins that killed your son That is because of my sins that your son had to go to the cross and die on that cross. And I'm asking your forgiveness. And then just to look to Jesus. And as Paul said in in this letter, to, to trust in his name. To trust in his name. Say, Lord Jesus, I trust you with my life. I trust you with my very soul. From here on out, Lord Jesus, I am yours. Because you are mine. And so that's just a really, it's, it's really an attitude of the heart. It's not, there's no magic formula to the words that you say, but it's just having a heart that's genuinely broken, genuinely sorry, that goes to God and asks for his forgiveness and say, I, and would say, I believe in Jesus, your son dying for me on the cross, that that is what saves me. And that's what adopts me into your family. And so we're going to be quiet here in a moment. You could ask Jesus to be your savior here today, here this morning and be adopted into the family of God and have a genuine, authentic, spiritual life, have an affection for God that you've never had when you've only had hostility and a security of knowing that you are God's son or daughter. There may be some of us here today that you have asked Jesus to be your savior, but you've walked in fear more like a slave than a son. Maybe because of your religious background your church background you've never thought of yourself as a dearly loved accepted son or daughter and there hasn't been that freedom and that confidence in your relationship with your heavenly father today we just ask the lord through the spirit to open your eyes to the reality of adoption so that you can walk in true freedom and true grace so i'm going to be quiet for a couple of minutes and then I just want to ask you to take a few minutes to just have a one-on-one conversation with the Lord this morning. Just talk to Him about your soul. Talk to Him about your heart. Make your heart right with Him as it relates to your adoption. And I'll pray for us here in a moment. Mm. And Lord Jesus, when we sing this song, I just pray, Lord, that you would give us faith to trust what you say. That we could believe believe this as impossible as it might seem. That we could believe this to the uttermost today. Give us faith to trust what you say today about us. And we love you today, Jesus. Thank you for giving us so much, giving so much of yourself for us. Thank you, Jesus.